We've had uh, so many guest speakers lately that Scott thought he would be funny and add me to the introduction list. Um, but maybe you're new here and you're like, I don't know who Kyle is. Why is this so funny? Um, I'm, my name is Kyle. I'm the youth pastor here. So I hang out with the middle schoolers and high schoolers. Um, and I just recently, two days ago, it was a month, um, became a dad. Aww. I became... Um, You haven't seen them here in second service because they're usually here in first service, but I became a dad to uh, two little kids. My wife and I are foster parents, Um, and so we have a little eight-week-now-old girl and a two-year and, like, three-month, four-month-old boy, Um, and they are awesome. They are fun. It is exciting. It has changed my life completely, Um, going from zero kids to two kids is, is quite the change. It is the most exhausting thing I've ever done. Um, <laughs> and it got me to start thinking, even I was preparing for, for this morning, I started to think about, um, my, my, now our son, um, he's Spanish speaking with a little bit of English thrown in and mostly gibberish two-year-old talk. Um, and so he wouldn't really say this because he just doesn't say it yet, but I can imagine he, he will once he can. And your kids... How many of you have ever had kids? Most people in the room, awesome. Um, you didn't raise your hand. What the heck? No, he didn't. <laughs> the wife said they had kids, husband didn't. In- interesting. First service, we were praying for the Pinkham. Second service, we need to pray for the Commons. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but have you ever heard this question? You, you give an instruction, you, you, you give a, a rule maybe, or we're going to do this or do that. And, and the question comes up of why, why, why? And then you give an, an answer and they ask, why is that the answer? And then you say why that's the answer. And then they ask, well, why is that the answer for that answer? Right. And have any of you ever experienced that? Oh yeah, we've done it. Right. Um, we were the ones asking it when we were kids. Um, and, and we get kind of frustrated probably as adults or parents um, because we're like, well, I've told you why. I've told you why, and I, I don't have time to tell you again. And so sometimes this is a response that I've heard a, as a kid and a response maybe that you have even said or maybe a response that you've heard when you were a kid of because I said so, because I said so. Have, have any of you ever said or heard that? Yeah, okay, most of us, most of us in here. Um, if you have your hand down, you're, you're laughing, which means you've probably heard it or said it. My dad used to say this to me all the time, all the time, because I said so, because I said so. It's this frustrated response to this annoying question of why, why, why. Well, just do it because I said so, that's why. And... As a youth pastor, even in youth ministry, we kind of operate, especially during camps and on retreats on a, you know, you'll know what you need to know when you need to know it kind of basis. And we hope that the students will just trust that we have their best interests in mind in the meantime, that we will make decisions that are benefiting them, not hurting them, even if they don't know what decisions we're making, right? So we have their best interests in mind. Now, this response of because I said so kind of implies that you hold enough of a position of authority in that person's life that they know that they should listen to you no matter what, just because of who you are, regardless of what it is you're telling them to do or anything else. But you have this position of authority. If you're willing to say that to them, it is implying I have authority in your life. You should do what I say. 
or the, the person you're saying it to knows you, knows you really well, and you have a close relationship, and they know that you have their best interests in mind. And so I'm going to listen to you because I know that whatever you're telling me is actually what's best, and I know that because we have a close relationship. And oftentimes it's actually both those things, authority and relationship come together, especially in parenthood, where a parent has authority in your kid's life, but you also love your kid like crazy and you want what's best for them. And so, because I said so, right? Um, I imagine for some Israelites, for some Hebrews, um, as they were given the Ten Commandments, they might have thought or even said out loud, Why? 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 Why are we given that? Why is that the rule? Right? And remember that these people are coming from slavery in Egypt, and in Egypt their world was vastly different than the world God wanted to create for them. In that culture they had many gods. They had gods for different things, gods that played different roles. And so kids grew up in a culture where many gods and different gods were a norm. This is the way that the Egyptians were. And yes, we have a different heritage, but this is the world that I'm living in, right? It's as if you grow up in Silicon Valley and then all of a sudden you're transplanted into like southern China. The world is different there. It's different. And, and this is the world they grew up in. And then all of a sudden they were, um, they were able to escape. They were rescued out of slavery by some crazy miracles. And then you're told, hey, don't have any other gods besides me, Yahweh, the one who rescued you. Don't have any other gods before me, Yahweh, the one who rescued you. And some annoying little Hebrews probably thought, well, why? 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 Wouldn't it be better to have more than one God? Wouldn't it be better to have many? We have a God. Um, they had a God who established uh, his authority within the Hebrew people. He has an established relationship with the Hebrew people. But he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just have authority and relationship. He goes further, and then he gives them compelling reasons why they should follow these rules, these laws, these commandments. So he has authority. He could have said, you need to do what I say because I say so, because he's God. He has that kind of authority, and he has that kind of relationship with these people where, where they should know he wants what's best for me. He just rescued me out of slavery. That's a big deal. But then he actually says, well, because I know you're going to struggle to follow these, I'll also give you reasons why. Okay. Um, if you're new here this morning, or if maybe you've missed some Sundays, we're getting to the end of a series on the Ten Commandments, a set of laws in the Old Testament that were handed down by God to Moses for the Hebrew people, an ancient people group talked about in the Old Testament, to follow that they might experience more life, and that the nations might see what the Hebrew God is like as the Hebrews follow these laws. They were a people group blessed in order to be a blessing to the surrounding people and nations. These laws were not only for the Hebrew people standing at the bottom of Mount Sinai, but they were for their descendants. They were for all of God's people to follow. As the Israelite nation grew and grew and grew and generation after generation came, these laws were still their laws. They didn't create a new set of laws or God didn't hand down, well, we have a new generation, so here's a new set. It continued to be these same laws. They were all for all the people in God's, fa God's family, excuse me, which includes all of you here in this room who have trusted Jesus as your savior. The New Testament authors say that you've been adopted into God's family. And as you follow these laws, you can experience more freedom and life to the fullest. And the people around you see your God, our God, the Hebrew God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob through you. So before we dive into uh, the Bible this morning, I'm gonna pray just to open us up. So would you bow your heads with me? God, I thank you for rescuing the Hebrew people. I thank you for giving us this story um, that is reflected throughout all of scripture and that we could talk about it freely here this morning. I thank you that we live in a country that is not closed. 
but is open to you. Would we not take that for granted? Would we remember that as we walk in here week after week after week and sing songs, um, we have freedom? Hmm. Yeah, so God, would you speak through me this morning? Would you speak through your word? Would your presence be felt and known? Um, We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to jump right into the Ten Commandments as told in the book of Exodus. Um, So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. I hope that you brought them. Um, We open up our Bibles here every single week. If you have a Bible, bring it. If you don't own a Bible, ask your neighbor for one. And if they're not nice enough to give you theirs, you can come ask me and I'll get you one myself. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, we're just going to read the first couple verses. Exodus is the second book of the Bible after Genesis, and 20 is uh, the big black, probably, letters in your Bible. It's going to be right after 19 and right before 21. That's where 20 falls. Um, So find that, Exodus chapter 20, here we go. It says this, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. We'll stop right there because that is our commandment for this morning. Uh, Before we start talking about it, though, I want to read out of Deuteronomy chapter 5, where Moses actually retells all of the Ten Commandments. We're just going to get another perspective of kind of the same thing. Deuteronomy chapter 5, we're going to read the first seven verses of that. It says this, Then Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the ordinances which I am speaking today in your hearing, that you may learn them and observe them carefully. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb, another name for Mount Sinai. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, with all those of us alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face at the mountain from the midst of the fire, while I was standing between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire and did not go up on the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt Out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. So, first, before we kind of jump in on on our commandment, I just want to almost do a little bit of a a recap of a couple weeks ago. David Tish uh, did an awesome job talking about this idea of there are many gods in the Old Testament. We talk about the the Egyptian culture, many gods, and, and David brought up this word Elohim, this Hebrew word which means God. So first, these people would have thought, well, which God? So, so first answer, well, who is this God? If you were, uh, so David taught about Elohim being the, the Hebrew word for God, and this God identifies himself as the one who rescued this people group from Egypt, from slavery. He established his identity with them. He's not just any God. He's the one who rescued them. And knowing that when Moses arrived back in Egypt after his burning bush experience, that that God has also had previously established himself as the God of their forefathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who made a covenant with Abraham, a promise in Genesis 12. So this Elohim, this God, is a God who the Hebrews believe has authority. I mean, they witnessed him do some incredible things in the plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea. Like they, with their own eyes, saw crazy miracles where this God has authority over nature and animals but also is a God with an established relationship with this specific people group. He's not a distant, random God. He didn't show up just for this moment. This is a real God who's been with them for a long time, with real authority, who has shown compassion and love and kindness toward this specific people group. If you don't know this story, you should read it because it is one of the best stories in the whole Bible. And so many of the stories that follow come back to reflect this one of the the rescuing from Egypt. And and if you, you read it, you will hear that the Hebrews were crying out to God 
And it says that God heard their cries. This God, not any random God, but this one, Yahweh, heard their cries and thus stepped in and rescued them. After that, after he's established who he is, he gives them these commands. Starting with, in our Christian tradition, you shall have no other gods, no other Elohim before me or besides me. And as I read that, if I was to imagine a lineup of chairs on stage here, one at the front going backwards all the way to that wall, I imagine, okay, I'm to have no other gods before God, so God wants to be in the front chair and everybody else goes behind. Even in English, I can almost hear a loophole here that I shall have no other gods before him, but I can have some behind him or around him or something like that, just not before him. He needs to be at the front, right? And so that Hebrew phrase I don't like the translation of before because that to me leaves a loophole, leaves, leaves room for, for somewhere else. And so I, I like to think of it as um, you shall have Yahweh as your God and no others. You shall have Yahweh as your God and no one else or nothing else. That we are to reserve this, this one chair. There's only one chair. There's not a lineup of chairs, but there's one chair. And, and I can choose who sits in it. I can choose what goes in that chair, but that's the chair that Yahweh wants. That's the chair that he wants to sit in, in my life. God establishes who he is, then delivers the what, the commands. And then at the end of Deuteronomy chapter five, he gives some whys. And this isn't the only place that it happens. In Genesis, uh, God has an established authority over Adam and Eve, and he created everything. That's A pretty good start for some authority. And God even has relationship with them and right relationship at that. They're walking in the garden together. And from that place, God gives one command. Don't eat from this tree or you will surely die. That sounds like a compelling reason not to eat from the tree to me. And we know that Adam and Eve fail in the way that any of us would have failed. This is a pattern in human history. God has authority and God in his relationship with humanity offers them a way to live that brings life and humanity fails over and over and over again. At the end of Deuteronomy chapter five in the last two verses, 32 and 33, that we're gonna read, Moses then delivers some whys. Not simply because God said so, and not only because God has authority, and not only because God has relationship with this people group, but also, here's some, some whys. So verse 32 and verse 33 say this. So you shall observe to do just as, ooh, skipped like three pages there. You shall observe to do just as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right or to the left. You shall walk in all the way which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days in the land which you will possess. So we have three things that that Moses kind of breaks out here as some, some compelling reasons why, not just because of my authority, not just because of my relationship with you, but also because you will have life, also because you can experience joy in that life, that it will be, a, it will be well with you. And, and lastly, because you will prolong your days in freedom. You will prolong your days in the promised land. You have a longer free life. If Egypt equals slavery, then the promised land is the opposite and it represents freedom to the Hebrew people, to the Israelites. The longer their life in the promised land, the longer their freedom To experience this longer, free, good, joyful life, they're simply called or asked or challenged to follow the set of commands that we know of as the Ten Commandments. We all have an Egypt, and it's not the country for us. I've never been there. I don't know about you. But we all have an Egypt. We all have something that has put us in bondage. Maybe it's an addiction. 
Maybe it's a past sin that you just haven't gotten over. You can't get over. You feel like it's, you're stuck in it. Maybe it's a relationship that you can't get out of and it's become toxic to you. We all have in Egypt a place or a thing that has made us its slave, its servant, taken away our freedom. We are no longer able to live free because of this thing, this person, this place continues to pull us back, pull us back. And we, we let it. We have that choice. And remember at the beginning of chapter 5, Moses makes sure the Hebrews, now Israelites, know that the commandments were not just for, the, for their, their, uh, the people that were present at Mount Sinai, but because of the heads of the families all agreed to this covenant, it was binding for all in Israel, all in God's family, which includes us here today. We are not exempt from even the purpose of this law, the blessing that can come from this law. So the Hebrew, um, the, the, this idea of promised land, this idea of promised land, um, the, the word land there is, trans, is the Hebrew word eretz. 2,500 times it shows up in the Old Testament. Most of those times it's uh, translated as land. The second most often, it's a close second, is earth. So it's land or earth. And there's other English words it's translated into, but the biblical translators have this really tough job of taking one Hebrew word and, and deciding what's the best English word to fit in this place or this space. And here they chose land. But I think for us, because we didn't travel to the promised land, I like the word earth. Because we were given the earth as, as humans. That was part of our inheritance. God gave it to us to cultivate and to tend. What he said to Adam can be true for us. And so this word that um, means land, I think, allows us to think deeper about it, to think earth, that there is a promised land. There is freedom for us. If Egypt equals slavery and the promised land represents freedom, there is freedom for us too, even though that promised land isn't for us. Does that make sense? You guys kind of follow that track that we don't go to that physical promised land place, but there is still freedom for us. So now let's focus on no other gods besides Yahweh before Yahweh. You shall only have Yahweh as your Elohim of choice. I believe this command is central to everything in your life. Everything else hinges on this. And it's not just the other nine commandments that hinge on this, but everything when we place God in the chair, when we place God in his rightful place, when we say that there is no other Elohim I choose to follow, I give you my everything, God, everything else falls into place. And when we don't, when we sit down in that chair, when we sit down and take some other things with us, our money, our job, our, our families, it can even be good things that can become our gods. Everything else falls apart. Living rightly with God, experiencing the full and abundant and free life that he wants for you begins with acknowledging who God is and allowing him to be your only God, the only object of your devotion. Compared to your love for God, everything else is hate. Jesus in the New Testament says that you're to hate your father and mother and love him only. Like that compared to our love for God, everything else feels like hate. From the moment these commands were given, you have the Israelites failing and building the golden calf. The, the commands are given at the top of the mountain and the golden calf is being built at the bottom. When they finally inherit the promised land, we watch the Israelites take up the gods of the Canaanites, the people group that lived in this land before them. When David comes onto the scene, there are some brief moments of, of trusting fully in God and you see Israel prosper and become a nation and then David is selfish and his kids fail and they place power and lust and greed as their God and not Yahweh as their God. And Israel eventually is led back into slavery. The place they were rescued from, they find themselves back into. The very thing they were rescued from. And the prophets begin to tell of someone who would come from the line of David, an Israelite, a Hebrew, someone of royal descent. 
that would follow all of the law, someone who would save his people from Egypt, from their slavery again. But this time it wouldn't be temporary. Isaiah prophesies about this future leader who would lead his people in obedience to the law, that he would follow it and help everyone else follow it somehow. Not only is this not temporary, but it's also not just slavery from another people group, but slavery from anything. We live in a time post-Jesus where we believe Jesus was this person the prophets were talking about who came and he fulfilled the law. He followed every law to the T and not just outwardly, but he knew it inwardly. He knew the heart of the law so much deeper than we do and he followed that as well inside. And he sums up all the law as love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is really quoting Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7, where, where Moses states those things. So, so this weird command that we're talking about this morning, have no other gods before Yahweh, could be said another way as love God, in parentheses Yahweh, a specific God, with all your heart, love God with all your soul, love God with all your heart, or sorry, with all your mind your heart, your soul, your mind. So now let's break that down and then hopefully I'll be able to send you out this week with some practical ways that you can love God and thus fulfill the first commandment and experience a better life and more freedom. The word here used, now we're in the New Testament, so we're talking about the Greek language, is a Greek word, agape. And that's the word here used for love. And love in Greek has multiple different words. If you don't know it, you could look it up because the Greeks have different words for love as if friendship kind of love. Uh, agape, which I'll describe here, or love for like a spouse. These different words which are all translated as love in English, which I think is one of the reasons why we have such a problem with love because we use the same word to describe I love cheeseburgers and I love my wife, right? I love my kids and I love water, it's not the same. Our, our, our sense of love is different, but we use the same word. So this word agape is a verb, and it's an action-oriented kind of love. So when you love with all your heart, it's active. When you love with all your soul, it's active. When you love with all your mind, it's active. Agape is also sacrificial. It's selfless. It's unconditional. So in this way of loving God, placing him as your object of devotion, it's all about him, and it's not about you. It's all about him, and it's not about you. There is a sacrifice involved and there are no conditions on it. There's no, God, I'll love you with everything if you. God, I'll follow you if you. God, I'll give this up if you. Right? We don't place conditions on our love for God. And confession, I've done that. Those phrases I just said, those aren't just phrases I threw out for you. Those are my phrases. I say those things. And that's not what God wants from us. Another way to define the word all, so if we're to love with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, is whole. Your whole heart, your whole soul, your whole mind. It means if I'm giving my whole heart, there's no more heart left for anything else. If I'm giving my whole soul to God, there's no soul left for anybody else or anything else. If I'm giving my whole mind to God, there's no, oh, I still have this part of my mind left. No, the whole thing has been given to God. I'm loving with my whole mind. There's no room to be given anywhere else. Does that make sense? So now let's talk about these words, heart, soul, and mind. The Greek word for heart is cardia, and it's talking about the center of your life. The Greek word for soul is psyche, and it's talking about the source of your life. And the Greek word for mind is dianoa, and it's talking about your feelings and desires in life. And so naturally, we, we, tend, we see the pattern of they all have to do with your life. So now let's rephrase this. Jesus says the greatest commandment, 
which includes our commandment number one this morning from the list of ten, is to actively and unconditionally love Yahweh, in parentheses, the God who rescued you from your slavery, from the center of your being, from the source of your being, and with all your feelings and desires. This is, this is no small task, right? To be honest, I'm like, I don't even know what that means, what I just said to you guys. I'm like, can you explain that to me? Because like, that's what I'm catching with here, but that doesn't sound easy or even attainable, to be honest. God's asking for all of us, not part, not even 99%. He's asking us to die to ourselves, to do, some, to do something about our love for God. That it's this action where it's not that I choose to do something, but I love God with so much of the center of who I am that I can't not do something about it. I can't not love other people because that's what God wants me to do because I love him so much. I have to do something. This kind of love is hard. It's ever present. You don't get a day off. This kind of love doesn't say love me on Sunday and Monday through Saturday, you can chill. This kind of love doesn't say love me when you're around other people, but when you're by yourself, you can do you. This kind of love doesn't let you take a day off and it's hard. It's hard. It almost sounds impossible. So if we're rescued out of slavery, and then this is what God tells us to do in order to experience freedom, how do we get to freedom? How do we get to that place? If this seems so impossible to me, at least, if you've got it figured out, you're speaking next week, just so you know, and you're going to share with all of us how you figured that out. Well, here's what I've found. The way from slavery to freedom is back into servanthood but it's to be a servant to Christ. Now, it sounds odd, so just go with me for a second as we talk about this, but real fast, let me ask, um, I'm a youth pastor, so you can talk while I'm talking a little bit, and I'm going to ask you a question. Um, what do servants do? And I, I want to hear some answers. Just start shouting them out. What do servants do? Serve. serve. You guys are just as smart as the first service. It's awesome. Servants serve. What else? Give me some more. Do what they're told. Okay. Yeah. Sacrifice, good. Give me some more. Follow directions. Anything else come to your mind? Give up their time. Somebody was about to say something. Obey, good. Okay, awesome. These are good. These are all good. Um, I came up with a, a, just a list of four. It's not exhaustive. None of what you said was wrong. I actually had somebody in the first service that said servants make breakfast. And then he went on to say that he's the one making the breakfast, so he feels like a servant. Um, we're in second service, so we can make fun of those weird people that get up early. So here's my list of four that I think servants do, that I, that I think apply to us this morning. Um, one, they serve others. Good job, you got that one. We're on the same mind there. They serve others. Not just their master, though, right? If their master has company, they're serving all those people, too. So it's, it's not just there's one person they serve, but they serve others. They tend to their master's needs or desires. Whatever their master needs, they're going to they're gonna do, right? Um, they're going to tend to those things. They help their master accomplish his or her tasks. So if we think, you know, back in the day when there were slaves in America, there were servants, they were serving on the field, they're serving in the house. Like, whatever their, their, their master's mission might be, they're going to serve alongside to help accomplish that mission. And then lastly, I, I think good servants are going to do those first three, but a great servant's going to do, like, this fourth one. A great servant's going to know and study their master well enough in order to please him or her. That, that it's not just, I'm going to wait for you to tell me what pleases you. I'm going to know you so well, I'm going to do it ahead of time. Same way with good employees, right? 
If any of you have ever worked a job, which I'm sure some of us have, um, you know that the great employees are the ones that don't wait to be told what to do, but they start to initiate and do it on their own. Those are the ones who they get to know what would please their boss, their master, right? So as a servant of Christ, if we were to apply this to serving Christ, to being a servant of Christ, not just that we serve him, but we are a servant of Christ, we are to serve others, not just serve Christ, but to serve the people around us. So get involved here. This is an easy place to serve, but you should also serve in your community, serve in your neighborhood, serve other people. You should tend to Jesus' desires. And if you don't know what Jesus desires, you should read the New Testament because it's full of Jesus. And Jesus starts to tell you a little bit about what might be what he wants. And spoiler alert, just one, Jesus desires to save lost people. And so tend to the desire of saving lost people. Three, help Jesus in his mission. Reach the world for, with his saving grace. Jesus has a mission that every person might know of his saving grace. And help us, we as his servants, are meant to come alongside and help him accomplish this task, this mission. And lastly, we should be great servants that know Jesus well enough that we can please him. We, we read the Bible. We, we read it quietly. We read it out loud. We read it when we're by ourselves. We read it with other people. We read different translations. If you know different languages, read it in different languages. Um, read the Bible forwards and backwards over and over and over again that you might know who this Jesus is, that you might know how to please him, that you might be able to walk like him because that's what pleases the Father. So let's close with this, and I'm going to invite the worship team back up. Um, Our command this week, our command this morning in our series is, you shall have no other gods before me, or you shall have Yahweh as your God and no one or nothing else. You were in slavery. We all have an Egypt. You were in slavery, and the only way to freedom is through Christ. The Hebrews were rescued out of Egypt, but in order to experience that freedom, they needed to go through Christ. And I almost feel like the Israelites, the Hebrews, were set up for failure. How were they supposed to follow this law? How were they supposed to follow any of the laws? They could follow some of them sometimes, but they can't follow any of them all the time. And, and the Bible says that if we break any of the laws, we're a transgressor of the whole law. So how were the, how were the Israelites supposed to do this and experience the life that God wanted for them? Well, I kind of believe that the law was given to them that they might know that they can't do this on their own. They, they, the law is this almost this mirror reflection that's put up in front of them to say, you need help because you can't do this on your own. And God sends help in Jesus. Jesus follows the whole law. He fulfills it. He doesn't do away with it or say that it was worthless or useless. He fulfills it. And now through Jesus, that freedom that was unattainable through the law is now attainable with Jesus. That freedom that was almost like we couldn't get there because humanity failed and failed and failed and failed. Now we can because of Jesus. We live in a culture, especially today, uh, where you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, because you have money. And, and you might not be rich in this room, but we live in America and we're in Silicon Valley of all places. So we have this kind of, you know, seeming freedom but none of that freedom to choose what place to go eat for lunch today or what car to buy next week or next year, or what school to send your kids to, none of that freedom compares to the freedom found in Christ. And you don't know that freedom until you step into it. The joy that we can find in Christ 
None of the, the, the passions we have in this life, the basketball that I love, none of that joy compares to the joy that I have in Christ. David Tisch said this a couple weeks ago, that the law is an invitation to know God more, to know God deeper. That this law, this Ten Commandments are an invitation for us to step into a deeper relationship with Yahweh. Romans 10.4 says that Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Everyone, that includes us. For all of us who believe, we might be counted as righteous because Jesus fulfilled the law. Jesus fulfilled this commandment that we're talking about this morning. And because we can't, not perfectly at least, we have Jesus. God is inviting you this morning to know him more and he's offering you your best life possible. Say yes to that invitation. Run away from Egypt. Stop trying to fulfill the law on your own. Let go and come to Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank you um, that you've provided a way for us to experience your goodness. You've provided a way for us to experience freedom. I thank you that you screamed and you made it so obvious to, to us that, that Jesus is that way. You have this written word that's been preserved for, thousands, for years for us. We have these stories of the Israelites and the miracles and what you've done, God. You knew that we needed help. Help us to walk into our servanthood with Christ. And if we don't know you, if there's anybody in this room this morning that doesn't know you, God, I just ask that your, your knock on their heart would be so loud this morning, that the invitation through this law to know Jesus and experience freedom would be so loud that they would have to, they would want to, they would choose to open that door of their heart, God. Yeah, we love you, we trust you, we give you our all, we give you our whole selves, everything that we have. We don't hold anything back for anyone or anything else, God. Amen.